Good morning. We are starting this week on a short series, five weeks, called Questions That Deserve an Answer. Trying to take some of the top questions that I think are most difficult for us to answer uh, as Christians and from the scriptures to build your faith and to encourage those who are seeking and exploring Christianity to uh, to grapple with some of the answers that uh, that God sets before us in his word. And so today we're looking at the issue of exclusivity. How can there be one true religion? And to set our minds and to provide us with a little bit of a jumping off point, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 today, which is printed in your bulletin. So if you have those, go ahead and turn there and give ear. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives himself since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, or Demaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Well, it was Christmas of 2006, so not last Christmas, but the Christmas before, I was standing in the incredibly long line at the Honey Baked Ham Store. I'd been commissioned by Laney's folks, I was, we were up in Sacramento, to pick up Christmas dinner. And as I stood there, I had all four of the kids with me, and 
there we were in this incredibly long line waiting. It divides into nine different, you know, lines. If you've ever been there, it's just crazy. And I thought, well, you know, I ought to bring something for us to read while we were, while we're waiting. And so I brought this. It's called the Read Aloud Poems for Young People. Okay, and I was, I was thumbing through it before we left, and I found this poem called The Blind Men and the Elephant. And I thought, oh, that'd be kind of fun. Like, I was familiar with the general idea of it. But for those of you who aren't, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will read the last part of it. But essentially, six blind men go up to an elephant, and then they begin to explain what an elephant is. Okay, and so one elephant touches the side and says, oh, the elephant's like a wall. Another touches the tusk and says, the elephant's like a spear. Another one touches the trunk and says, no, 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 it's like a snake. Another one touches the knee and says, it's like a tree. Another touches the ear and says, it's a fan. And then the last grabs the tail and says, no, 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 no the elephant's like a rope. Okay? So you kind of get the idea. Well, the next to last stanza says this. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's more than just like a, a play, fun poem for kids. There's actually a moral to that. Well, there's more. There's actually one last stanza here that I had never seen before in any other edition of this poem I'd ever been exposed to. Listen to this. Here's how the poem ends. So often in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. And so as I was getting ready to bring this sermon to you today, I was thinking, you know what? That right there is probably one of the strongest and most popular arguments levied against Christians or anybody that wants to say that their religion alone is the right one. Right? I mean, think about that. We've all been exposed to this idea of, well, that's your truth, not mine, or that's good for you, it's not for me. And I think we're also reminded by this poem that religion causes problems. I mean, you've got to just admit it. Religion causes problems, and it's the exclusive claims of religion that cause the most significant problems. Right? People disagree, and then it causes conflict. Casual conversation gets personal, and pretty soon relationships, you know, devolve into fighting that can't be solved. And this is why they say you're not supposed to talk about religion, right? What is it? It's, it's religion. It's politics. You're not supposed to talk about it. And then I, I think it's sex, right? Although I'm not, I don't know, not really sure why that one gets thrown in. But um, so. Anyways, as we look at today, I want to give you a definition of religion that I'm going to be working with, okay? And it's a little broader than the normal idea of a definition of religion, so you want to write this down. A religion is any set of answers to the ultimate questions, okay? We're still in the introduction. A religion is any set of answers to the ultimate questions. And what are the ultimate questions? Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? How do we fix it? Okay, those are the ultimate questions. And Again, this is a lot broader than saying religion is just a form of worship or a particular view of morality, but it's helpful to see religion this way because it helps us to better understand the world that we live in, okay? Because every religion provides answers to these ultimate questions, okay? And because these are ultimate questions, they touch on the meaning of life. Is there a God? What is God like? Where is history going? Again, what's wrong with the world and what can we do to fix it? And so to disagree with someone else 
on these questions is to touch at the very heart of who they are. Okay, that's why we get so exercised about this. And it's important to define religion as a set of answers because atheism is a religion in the sense that it provides a set of answers to the ultimate questions. Secular humanism, the idea that you shouldn't bring religion into the public sphere, that's a religious position because it speaks to the issue of is there a God, does the God care about public, public sphere, and what's wrong? How do we fix the world, right? Secular humanists have an idea about how to, how to fix things. They have a set of answers. Evolution is a religion in that, in that sense. It's a set of answers to the questions that are ultimate. And so usually it's agreement about all of these questions, right? It's usually agreement of the answers that form communities and enable people to work together. But these answers also cause incredible conflict. There's a slippery slope in religion because the answers that you have are true, otherwise you wouldn't believe them, and they also have a set of practices that go along with them. Based on what you think is true or false goes along a set of things that you either do or you don't do based on those ultimate answers. Okay, and so here's what happens. Once you feel convinced that you have a set of answers that are sufficient, there's a temptation that's in all of us to begin to feel superior to other people who don't have our truth. Okay? And that feeling of superiority then leads you to separate yourself in different ways from other people, either separating yourselves from people that disagree with your answers, or this happens in the church a lot, we tend to separate from people who don't practice as purely the set of practices that we think go along with the set of answers. And so separation happens, and then... We start, again, this downward spiral where we start to mentally marginalize other people. They become those people. We stereotype and caricature them. And they begin to lose some of their personality, some of their individuality. That can lead, then, to passive tolerance of oppression. Where we stop thinking that, well, they actually deserve that. You know, they should get, I mean, this is just just desserts for their set of answers, or they don't understand what we understand, so therefore they're getting what they deserve. Or, and then that ultimately leads to active oppression, where you're actually participating in the oppression or the abuse or the violence against another group of people. Tim Keller brought out this downward spiral. I think it's incredibly insightful, and it's helpful, and it exposed stuff in my own heart where, you know, I've been guilty of this. And I think this really does resonate with all of us because either we've been on the receiving end of this sort of downward spiral where we've been marginalized or we've actually participated in, uh, in this spiral toward other people. And again, I think if we're honest, Christianity has probably some of the most famous instances of this kind of oppression towards others. Right? You always get thrown... Th- what always comes up are the Crusades, the Inquisition the witch hunts earlier in this country. The church has taken up the sword and God's name has been invoked to oppress others throughout history. And I think even, we don't have to look that far back, a modern example would be the way that much of the church has treated the homosexual community. You know, the church has shamed them and ostracized them and made them feel like they are so much worse than everybody else. And so, again, this is that downward spiral. But it's not just Christianity. Lots of religions have caused similar problems 
in history. I mean, we look today at the Middle East. Everything going on there is based on religion. It's based on battling ideologies, different sets of answers to the ultimate questions. Um, terrorism is done in the name of God. And I think if you, you look at it, in every instance of horrendous treatment by one people group to another, it always starts with this notion where at some point somebody believes that, well, they're, it starts as they're different and then they're less than, they're inferior. Right? Think about Nazi Germany. Think about slavery. I mean, even interracial dating is involved in the same kind of downward spiraling. Well, now, so how does Christianity fit into all of this, right? This is the problem um, as we're trying to lay this out. Well, we say along with Paul here in Acts 17 that there is a God who created all things. He's revealed himself and demonstrated his plan for history by raising Jesus from the dead, and Jesus is going to return to judge the world, right? We stand with Paul here, but yee, isn't this just the problem? I mean, how is Christianity going to bring salvation to the world if its claims that it's the only true religion actually caused the problems in the first place? Well, this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to try to examine this question in the first two points, and then we're going to, the third point, we're going to see if we can find a way through. And so let me give you the points now as we get into them. The first point we're going to look at is that, number one, everyone believes there's only one true religion. Everyone believes there's only one true religion. Secondly, everyone believes this by faith. And then third, the gospel changes the conversation. All right, so first, everyone believes there's only one true religion. Are you surprised to hear me say that? Anybody offended? Well, you don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to know yet. <laughs> we'll have a Q&A time afterwards. You can bring your, your questions. Um, I mean, some of you I know are part of other religions, and some of you don't think that we can even know if there is a God for sure and don't know which religion is right. But let me show you, okay? Let's, let's put this in sort of categories. First, you've got exclusive religions that are just explicitly exclusive. Christianity, Judaism, Islam. These are religions that teach that only their religion saves. Okay, and so it's pretty easy to see that they believe there's only one true religion. But then, and in a sense, we see that here in our text in verse 17 where Paul is reasoning with the Jews and the devout persons. Those were Gentiles that worshipped the Jewish God in verse 17 there. But then you have the view, how about this, the view that says all religions, all sets of answers are equally valid paths to God. Well, how is that an exclusive claim? How is that saying that there's one true religion? Well, people that believe this whether they're part of a religion that has a name or not, that is their religion. Okay, that is their set of answers, that all religions are equal to God. This is the blind man and the elephant. You know, that everybody has part of the truth. And so this means that part of your religion is that God doesn't care how you approach him, just that you approach him. Right, that is your religion, and that is an exclusive claim. Okay, and so, because most people who believe that think that you should think this way too. It's an exclusive belief. Okay, then there's others, there's a subset of those who say that, well, all religions are legitimate insofar as they promote fill in the blank. 
right? Every religion is legitimate insofar as it promotes peace, love, understanding, tackles world poverty, seeks to bring people together. This view is a little more critical because it would say, well, there's certain parts of religions that are wrong, but then other parts that are right. But whatever the common denominator is that you look for that's, that legitimates one religion or another or parts of one religion versus another, that common denominator is your opinion of the true religion. Okay? Whatever the common denominator. Let me give you an example. So one, one authority in, in one Buddhist authority says this. All religions should reside everywhere, for all of them desire self-control and purity of heart. Okay, so here we see that self-control and purity of heart is the true religion of Buddhism, or at least this particular authority's view, you know, version of Buddhism. Okay, and then, so third class of people, there are people who say that God doesn't exist, those are the atheists, or that we can't know if God exists. That's agnosticism. The Epicurean philosophers that Paul reasoned with in verse 18 were one type of agnosticism um, that he was dealing with. Well, to say either of these things, that God doesn't exist or that you can't know that God exists, that's a religious claim. That's, a, that's an answer to the question of whether or not there is a God or what is that God like. That is a religious, it, it may, you may say, I don't have a religion, or I don't want to choose between religions. But if you think that you can't know who God is, that is part of an exclusive set of answers to the ultimate questions. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of people, even people that are part of a named religion, don't fully buy into the religion itself, but... You know, they, they call themselves one religion, but really they're more of an inclusivistic or pluralistic subset of the beliefs of the religion that they say they are. But, there, I mean, but the bottom line here is that everyone believes there's only one true religion. There's only one true set of answers. Even if your professed religion is different from what you really have in your heart as the standard by which you measure all religions, everyone has an answer to the, to the ultimate questions. And everyone thinks that other people should think like them. Right? There's, a, there's a sense of, of wanting to convince other people to be like you. And I, so I just, it's best to admit that at the outset, that it's not just Christianity that claims to be the only religion. Everybody does this. Okay? Everybody wants to pr present their answers as the answers that they think are best and that everybody ought to buy into. Okay, so I think it's best to admit this, especially if we're going to try to have dialogue. So second, everyone believes that there's only one true religion by faith. Okay, everyone believes this by faith. So if you're here today and you're looking for an airtight empirical proof that would apply to every single person, it's impossible. Okay, no matter what the set of answers you have, no matter what your religion is, everybody has to exercise faith at some point in the process. Okay, everyone has to make a leap of faith. Now, now, don't misunderstand. There are some religions, some sets of answers that require more faith than others. Okay, if I showed up here one day and said, you know what? God spoke to me and told me that if you really want to be saved, don't worry about Jesus. You just need to eat olives every day for the rest of your life. It would take a lot more faith to believe that, right, than it would take to believe Christianity or 
there's lots of other things that would be more plausible than than the olive religion. Um, but everybody at some point does take a leap of faith. Now, whether it's, whether, and what happens is this leap of faith, it leaps over doubts, okay? And so whether your doubts are as big as a canyon or if they're just an obstacle that you have to hurdle, everybody has to come to a point where they say, well, this just makes the most sense to me, or, well, this is just how the world is, or, well, this is just what I believe, okay? There is nothing, there is no position religious or non-religious, there's no set of answers that you can have that aren't based at some point on faith. Let me show you what I mean. So the, 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 the view that says, well, you can't know anything for sure, right? You can't know for sure if Christianity is true or if Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or the Baha'i faith, you can't know if any of this stuff is true. That's not an argument. That's a statement that requires faith. Okay? To say that, you can't prove that that's true. You can't prove that you can't know anything for sure. Right? How do you know that God hasn't revealed himself in history? You don't. You can say, well, I don't think so. And you may be right. You might be right that ultimately we can't know which religion is right or if there is a God or what that God is like. You may be right, but you're putting all your eggs in the basket of that you just don't know and you can't know. And it takes faith to do that. Okay, it takes faith to say God hasn't revealed himself in history, not in a way that that's knowable or at least not in a way that makes us sure. Here's another phrase. Jesus rose from the dead. I can't provide an airtight proof that will satisfy everyone in this room right now that Jesus rose from the dead. I think there is all kinds of reasons why you should believe that. There's all kinds of proof in different forms and fashion, but it takes faith to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, the world evolved. It takes faith to believe that. You weren't there. You're trusting something to come to that conclusion, right? The position that God created the world takes faith. All religions are equal paths to God, equally valid paths to God. Same thing. This is an assertion, and it's one that you can't prove, right? This is, again, back to the blind man and the elephant. Let me remind you. It's interesting. Let me read the the end of it. It says, These men rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. Okay? What's the problem with this? Boy, it sounds so good, right? It sounds so good. Somebody is... I mean, inviting us all in to watch these people that are representing the different religions of the world fighting and bickering, and boy, isn't it great because we can watch this and we're, we're above this because we realize everybody's got a piece of the truth. What's the problem with this? Well, Leslie Newbigin, in a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist, Pluralist Society, he points out this. He says this, The only way to know that all religions have just one piece of the truth is to assume that you see the whole elephant. Which is the very truth that the author is saying nobody has. Does that make sense? The only way you can know for sure, oh, see, they're all just seeing pieces of the elephant, is if you're sitting there looking at the elephant, right? That makes sense. Well, how do you know you're seeing the whole elephant? I mean, how, like, how far back do you have to go, right? 
to where, oh, oh, I can see the whole thing. I can relativize all these different religions. I know that I can see the elephant. I mean, it starts out and it sounds really good. It sounds humble. But actually, it's an incredibly arrogant and imperialistic. Like, I know what's right because I can see the whole elephant. It's like, how do you know it's an elephant? Right? And so this idea they're prating about an elephant, not one of them is seen. Well, the author himself can't see the elephant. That's the whole point of the poem, that you can't see the whole picture. Does that make sense? And so this notion that all religions are equally valid paths to God, it takes faith. Now, again, you may be right. That may be the truth, that all religions are valid paths to God. But you have to believe that you can see a big enough piece of the picture to be able to relativize everybody else's religious claim. And that takes faith. You can't know that for sure. And so, again, the point is that everyone believes that their set of answers is the right one by faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. Even the people that say they're not religious. Everybody has faith. Now, I think what happens with decisions about religion when we think about them is that we're really looking for a measure of certainty, right? That's the thing everybody's after. Like, how can we know for sure? It's so frustrating. And honestly, there's some religions that never, ever answer that question. They never, ever tell you whether you're on the right path or not or that you can know. What's interesting about Christianity is that it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It says, taste and see. I think that's powerful because what happens with Christianity is that people are drawn for all kinds of reasons. Something usually clicks within them. There's something inside of them that it's like it, it clicks into place. And, and all of a sudden, more of the world is explainable or understandable. Um, some people are drawn in because forgiveness clicks. You know, they've been carrying around guilt and a burden, and they feel like they need to get rid of it somehow. And so this notion that Jesus died for sins and finally provides a way to forgiveness with God, that clicks for people. For other people, it's a desire to have a relationship with God, wanting to connect with the transcendent, and Jesus becoming a man and bringing us back to God. That clicks. Other people want to be part of a community that loves them, that doesn't treat them like they're less than, that welcomes them, that seems like that community is struggling with a lot of the same things they're struggling with. And so that clicks for people. Other people are drawn because of the wisdom of the lifestyle of Christianity. For for whatever reason, some people are just, they love the music. They come into a worship service and they just connect with the music. And that's what helps them connect to the transcendent God. Well, what's interesting is that these things draw us in. And we begin to follow Jesus. And what happens is, it's after that, after we begin to follow Jesus, that God then gives us assurance. Okay, there are passages, I mean, taste and see that the Lord is good, is saying, look, come and check it out. Come and begin to follow Jesus and you will see that it's true. Okay, now, I'm a skeptic at heart and I'm thinking, well, gosh, if I was going to create a sales program for Christianity, boy, isn't that the greatest thing to do in the world? Hey, hey, come on, come, just become a Christian and then figure it out, you know, and then you can find out if it's true or not. I mean, it sounds like a little bit of a sales pitch, right? Because once you start following down, well, now you're stuck, you know, you're stuck and you're, you're kind of, you know, you put the blinders on. I mean, that's sometimes how it comes across or how it feels. But the reality is that everybody is taking a leap of faith. 
every one of you right now is taking a leap of faith, that there are answers that you have to the ultimate questions that you can't account for. And what Christianity is saying is, I think that this takes less faith (laughs) in one sense. This is more probable. To believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead and we can show you the proof, we can, or the proof that will show you how plausible it is that Jesus rose from the dead, or um, the notion that you will find, because what happens is, when you start following Jesus, God pours his spirit out on you. In, in, in verse 28 of our passage, Paul says that um, God created us, that we should seek him, I'm sorry, verse 27, that we should seek him in the hope they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from any one of us. The idea is it starts with a leap of faith, but God responds to that leap of faith by drawing near to you, and that gives you assurance. It gives you assurance. When you start to follow Jesus, God himself comes and dwells your heart, and then you know that you're a child of God. You know, but that assurance comes afterwards. It's kind of like marriage. Okay, if you think about it like from that perspective, you can't know what marriage is going to be like until you actually commit and walk in it. Right? You can read all the books, you can talk to all the married people you want, you can get counseling, you can get personality tests and how compatible are we and you know and all these kinds of things. You can do all that, but bottom line is that you can't know what marriage will be like until you actually do it. Same thing with all of our doubts. Same thing with becoming a Christian. When you decide to take the leap of faith and believe in Jesus, it's then that you find out that God is good. It's then that you find out that he really does give you a foretaste of heaven. You really do begin to live now the way that life will be perfectly in the new heavens and earth. You really do feel forgiven and assurance and this amazing communal family. All these blessings come as you, and you do get a foretaste if you hang around. Right. If you hang around the fringes and, and, and even, you know, get part of you know, become involved in different ways before you commit to Jesus, you do see it. And so um, so the point is, though, that um, we just we need to be honest back to the point. We need to be honest about the doubts, even that we have as Christians. The more honest we are about our doubts and our questions, two things happen. One, boy, doubts. Community is just the main way to answer doubts. Number one. Number two we become much more sensitive, much more able to help other people that have doubts. You know, we see much more believable when we're honest and put our doubts out on the table for folks because we're all doing this by faith. All of us are, na- are making a leap of faith. And so in order to dialogue with others, it helps us to be honest about our doubts and our questions. And this leads us to our final point. Okay, everyone thinks there's one true religion because everyone has a set of answers. Everyone believes this by faith. And then third, the gospel changes the conversation. The gospel changes the conversation. Now, in one sense, as I was writing this out, I was thinking, man, we're doomed. (laughs) If we're all exclusivists at heart and we all believe what we believe by faith, then there really is no hope. Fighting oppression, it's going to continue for the rest of the world. But I think the gospel does change things. Like Dick said, the resurrection changes everything. It changes even the way that we interact with people. Religion does produce this downward spiral into oppression, but the gospel reverses the trend. The gospel is like Superman flying around the world backwards to make the world go in the other way and time goes backwards. It, it really does unravel that downward spiral. 
it radically changes the way that we talk to other people. And so really briefly, I want to point out some of the things in Paul's address here that I think are helpful for us. First, you want to look for the signs of God's grace in other people. Okay? You want to find the marks of what's good in other people. Paul does this in verse 22. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay? That's, he's working with what he has, right? He's thinking, I can start there and I can work with this. I'm going to affirm their, their, their understanding that they have religious hearts. <clears throat> verse 28, he even quotes their poets, which is interesting. He takes sort of the truths that their poets got right, and he quotes that as part of his presentation for them. So you want the gospel would call us to see the good in others, knowing that they're made in the image of God. Right? Everyone is made in God's image. Nobody is as bad as they could be. Right? There's good in all of us. Right? It's not, it doesn't make us good enough to be able to enter into heaven on our works, but you understand what I'm saying. It's good for us to notice the good in others. Second, you want to work as much as you possibly can together with other people. Okay, you want to work together in every way possible. Right? We see this in verse 17, where Paul is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and then he's reasoning in the marketplace with those who happen to be there. Epicureans, Stoics, um, all, the, all the different people that he could. <clears throat> and then third... While you're working together with people, as you're rubbing shoulders with them, as you are affirming what is good in them and have a positive view of, of who they are and what they're about and, and you are supporting the good in what they're doing and you're working together in any way you possibly can, you're going to have conversations. You're going to talk about what you're doing together. You're going to talk about life. You're going to talk about the things that just go on. And as you have those conversations, you want to share the story of Jesus and the resurrection. That's ultimately what Paul said in verse 18. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, now this is crucial, okay, because the resurrection of Jesus presupposes what? If he was made alive from the dead, what does that presuppose? He was dead, right? The resurrection presupposes the crucifixion. Now, why is that relevant in how we talk, talk to people? Well, Let's think about this for a minute. The king of kings, the one who reigned above the heavens and the earth, left his heavenly throne and came to this broken, hurting, miserable world. And he didn't just come to declare his reign. He didn't just come you know, carried in on chariots. He came as a slave. He came and he took, he humbled himself to the point of being a slave. He humbled himself all the way to dying a criminal's death on a cross. And while he was tortured and murdered, he was loving and forgiving the people who were torturing and murdering him. Tim Keller says that if you take that Jesus and you bring him into the very core of who you are, you will never, ever feel superior to anyone. 
the gospel changes the conversation because it keeps that, you know, the first, the first step in that downward spiral is that you begin to separate yourself and feel superior to others. Well, the gospel says, you know what? I needed Jesus to die for me. He was there because of me. And so I'm not superior to anybody. The only thing that's good in me comes because God is doing something in me. He's changing me from the inside out. That's the only thing that's in me that's good. And if that's the only thing that's good in me, then I am not better than anybody. And it is my joy to begin to continue to demonstrate Jesus' life of, hum- of humble sacrifice by me stooping down and washing people's feet, by me looking for opportunities to serve other people, by me lifting other people up because they're better than me. The gospel changes this. When we share about Jesus and the resurrection, we're sharing first the death. And that death humbles us. And the glorious news of the resurrection is two things. First, that God has overcome the power of death. Jesus was raised from the dead, and so you can, there is hope for the future. God has overcome the thing that takes all of us. Jesus said there's hope for the future, but then it's a bodily resurrection. Jesus is in a body today. He is going to return in a body and live in a renewed heaven and earth, right? We're, those who follow Jesus will also inhabit bodies. We're going to have an earthly experience. It's going to be glorified. It's going to be beyond our wildest imaginations, but it will be earthly. Do you know what that means? That means that the earthly things you're doing today can be a foretaste of what's to come. The bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't just mean hope for the future. It means hope for today. It means that there's hope in your jobs, that you can actually do things that might correspond to what things might get done in the future, in the new heavens and earth. It means the way you treat other people, you can be a foretaste of what's to come. You can be part of what God is doing in the midst of history. It's both future and present. And so then the last thing that I think we learned from Paul is that Paul treats these people as if they innocently don't know. Okay, verse 23, Paul says, I I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This is what I proclaim to you. Paul doesn't make them feel bad for their idolatry. Paul doesn't go after them and rail on them. But what he does is he takes this one thing and he says, you know what, there's a gap in your understanding, and I'm going to fill that for you. Okay, that's Paul's approach. There's a huge difference between saying, I can't know God, versus saying, I don't know God. The one who says, I don't know God, is a seeker. He or she is someone who's still open to learning, open to to wanting to come to an understanding. And what we need to find, or what we find is that when we have the conversation about Jesus and the resurrection, it causes people to reconsider their answers and the answers of Christianity. Hearing about Jesus' sacrifice, his plan to bless the world, and his ability to change the people from the inside out, his ability to rain the blessings of heaven down so that people become foretastes of what's to come. All these things cause people to reassess their own religious beliefs, whatever their answers are. It causes people really to want to follow Jesus. And we see that. Some people follow Paul, verse 34. 
Some men joined him and believed, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and then women too, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so my hope is that if you're considering Jesus, if you are a seeker, if there's something unsettling about the answers that you currently have, if you feel like they don't account for enough, I'd invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'd invite you to begin the process of believing that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really was the Savior of sinners. We can talk about evidence. If you come to the Q&A time, we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, there's, yeah, there's lots to it, but at the core, really, it's just recognizing what I think we all know inside of us, and that's that none of us are perfect. We all fall short. None of us measure up to the standard that even we have for ourselves, let alone what standard God might have for us. And so beginning to follow Jesus just means admitting that you've sinned to God and then beginning to follow him. Ask him to forgive you and then to seek to follow Jesus. And the good news is that as you do that, God will show himself real to you. Let's pray. Father, you promise. You promise that you are not far from us. You promise that if we seek you, which is what you meant us to do, what you've made us to do, that you'll answer the cry of our heart and that you will reveal yourself to us. God, if there are those here who are seeking, show them the truth. Help them to see not a set of obnoxious answers, of one religion saying that everybody else is wrong, but help them to see Jesus dying on a cross. Help them to see you in the center of history changing everything. God, help all of us to take this Jesus so deep into the core of our being that we would become like him. We pray in his name. Amen.